Well, good evening, and welcome back to our, our final session. Good to uh, good to see everyone here tonight, and good to uh, good to be together one more time. Uh, we're envisioning this session as being more interactive, and so if there's questions you haven't had a chance to ask over the last uh, few weeks, now's your uh, now's your chance. Uh, we're gonna. Uh, do this as a panel discussion tonight, uh, and let me introduce the panel. Uh, this is Reverend uh, Charles Erlinson with Good Shepherd uh, Reformed Episcopalian Church, right. church and school here in town. That's right, yes. And I'm Mark Brayton with Our Savior's Lutheran Church, and Pastor uh, Reverend Matt uh, Bolter with Christ Episcopal Church, and Blaine Davis uh, with uh, Our Savior's Lutheran Church, and a seminary student at the North with the uh, North American Lutheran Church. We, we, we were figuring this would be a great start of a joke. What do you get when you get two Lutherans and two Episcopalians <laughs> together? But we didn't come up with a punchline, so we didn't pursue that uh, too far. So uh, Pastor Mark, where's the beer again? Yeah, that's, <laughs> in my, that's another story. We, uh, no, I'm not going to confess that tonight. We, I do have some apologies. Uh, uh, Bishop Strickland and Father and I had very much hoped to be here tonight. It is uh, All Souls Day in Catholic tradition uh, and a very important night of worship. And so they knew initially when we put the schedule together they couldn't be here. Uh, they send their regrets they had hoped to. And uh, Pastor Eric Barton is now with us. He is in the Holy Land. So I don't feel quite so sorry for him. Uh, but, uh, but we hope he's having a good trip and a safe trip. So what we envision doing tonight uh, is kind of ev evaluate and look forward. Uh, we, we've got two questions up on the board. Uh, one is, to, the first one will be evaluation of the Reformation, what was good, what was bad. And, and we'll take turns sharing some insights on that and then of course invite your questions. Uh, and then second, I think a good question, given all that we've said, given all that we've done, uh, what does it mean for moving onward? What, what, would, what does it look like to be a reforming church in Tyler in uh, 2017? Uh, so that, that's kind of the agenda, and we'll see where, uh, see where we go. Before we start, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Precious God, we come together again tonight, and we thank you for the opportunity to do this. We thank you for the chance to join together with brothers and sisters in you, for the chance to explore what, what your will is for us, for the chance to look at, at who you are and what you are about in our community. Lord, we thank you for all who have gathered we remember also Bishop Strickland and Father Nye as they have their services tonight. We remember Pastor Eric as he is on a trip in the Holy Land. Bless them and guide them too. But be with us now and guide and empower this conversation. For in your name we ask it all. Amen. Amen. Okay, first question is uh, positive and negatives of the Reformation. What, what's been good? What, what's been bad? And... Any, anyone want to get us started? Yeah. Um, I don't know how much to say. I've got a long, long list, so I don't know where to start. But um, I will. <laughs> I, I divided it up rather than kind of positively and negatively. I tried to look at it more thematically. Because um, history, as I was discussing with somebody before we started, is really um, a very complicated thing. And to try to pick and choose your moments and your themes, you have to have some way of organizing. So I chose a couple of themes. First, you could say that um, in terms of ecclesiology, that is the church, one of the things, the sad things, of course, it did is to divide the Western church on a permanent basis. The East and West had already split. This split the Western church, which, of course, we're still uh, dealing with. Um, and um, even though that's a, a largely negative thing, God in his providence 
of course, uses those kinds of things. Even in Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, he talks about how there have to be divisions uh, to enable us to see the truth. And uh, that's always been the case for the early church as well as in terms of heresy, that heresy is not a good thing, but it provoked the church to think harder about who she is and what the truth is. Um, there are a lot of differences or changes that have come to us in the way that we worship in terms of our, what I call, spirituality that came from the Reformation. Uh, one of these is, of course, that we say our services, <clears throat> we worship God uh, in publicly and um, in our Bibles or in the vernacular, that is for us in English. That's a gift you could say of the Reformation. It wasn't the case uh, for the medieval church. Um, it's a wonderful gift. Um, now with that, of course, comes a kind of change in the way we perceive the Bible. Um, traditionally, the Bible, that is, the Word of God, has always been kind of seen as being one with the, the people of God. And it's been much easier since the Reformation to think of, I can borrow this prop, think of the church as being there, and here's kind of the Bible, the Word of God as being a sort of artifact that kind of stands apart from the church. It's been a little bit easier to think that way since the Reformation. And um, some people have talked about the... Um, you know, the, the priesthood of all believers, which is a good thing. Um, but in terms of interpreting the Bible, we've gone maybe from having sort of the Pope be the interpreter to what some people call the, the papacy of all believers. That is, everyone now is able to interpret the Bible for himself and all have equal authority regardless of uh, their own personal piety or regardless of the authority they've got. Uh, so it's great to open up the scriptures, but you can see there's kind of a downside that leads to maybe even more divisions. If everyone's got the ability to say, I'm the authoritative interpreter, it's easy to kind of divide a little further. Um, it's interesting that in spite of the fact that the medieval church gave such a high view to the Mass, which I think rightly so, if we believe Christ is present, as most of us here I think do, um, that the, the laity in the Middle Ages didn't really partake very frequently. The gift of the Reformation was to truly make it a weekly celebration where everyone partook, not just the priest. That's a good both thing. Both elements. Both elements. I was going to, yeah, get they're right. Both elements. Around the 1200s, you, you uh, clumsy laity couldn't take the, the wine. You'd likely to spill it. I guess it was okay to drop a few crumbs of the, the body, but, you know, so. <laughs> uh, so that's a gift. Um, it's um, an interesting change. This is a little more maybe complicated, is that in, there was a sort of focus, um, a change of focus in Christianity in terms of being primarily about practice. That is, that it's this embodied, incarnated way of living out the faith. There was a turn towards Christianity as being primarily about belief and, and more of an intellectual world. And of course, along with that, you see kind of a move towards this sort of rationalism, that the highest faculty of man is his mind, and that the, um, the main way of approaching God is through the mind. Uh, that that uh, strand had kind of begun actually in the Middle Ages, before the Reformation, but the Reformation kind of completes that. On a more positive note, there is a greater role for the laity. In a lot of the piety of the uh, Middle Ages, the priest kind of did the heavy lifting. They would read the scriptures because they understood it more. They would say the mass, and the laity had to come and spectate, but they didn't really have to partake, maybe one to three times a year. So there is a turn towards the laity. That again, that idea of the priesthood of all believers, that it's not just the ordained priesthood or clergy that really does the spiritual things, but everyone has a part. So much so that we tend to think of the laity, I think in modern terms, as being a fourth order of the church, not just bishops, priests, um, and deacons, but that large, large group of people called the laity. Uh, the Reformation really highlighted that. Um, there is also, I think you could see, 
sort of a tension in Luther between faith and good works and that definition of how these things work together and in an overreaction to um, what seemed to be works by salvation. Our Roman Catholic brethren would say that's not what they were teaching and in fact they were not but it sure sounded like that to a lot of people um, and I think in re reaction to that Luther and others were tempted to shy away from this notion of works. Um, certain parts of scripture were not in favor by Luther for example the epistle of James a, what he called a right strawy epistle um, and of course that's one of the dangers of, of um, standing in judgment of the church that certainly needed to be uh, corrected is that you might get the idea that I can kind of pick and choose which books make it into the canon. Now, that's more of a Protestant idea. Um, I think the views of salvation have changed um, in the scriptures and I think in the early church salvation is a big, big term. It involves everything. The redemption of the whole cosmos and it's been kind of, kind of shrunk down to just me and my individual soul, not even the body, kind of make it into heaven. That's a real truncation of, of, the, of the salvation. Not necessarily what the first generation reformers were about, but this is kind of where it goes. Um, you can see how there might be an increased questioning of authority. Of course, if the authority is not really behaving well, not willing to reform itself, then you might want to call question, uh, authority into question. The, the problem is on what basis. That's, we've had a lot more problems as Protestants figuring out on what basis we judge the church without simply replicating the errors. Um, so that's kind of more of an intellectual consequence. Um, on the positive side of the intellectual side, there was a renewal of learning, uh, not just for a few, but again, if, if, if the spirituality is for all people, including the laity, then so is education. And putting the Bible in the hands of all people in the vernacular language means that inevitably, as a result of the Reformation, you're going to have a more educated populace as a whole. <clears throat> and if you think about the founding of our country, the first individual colonies before we were these United States, uh, almost without fail, they're... Um, their original constitutions and charters were uh, to propagate the gospel, and they wanted to have schools, public schools, meaning common schools, so that they could educate people, primarily to be able to read the Bible. That's a gift, I think, of the Reformation uh, that wouldn't have happened, perhaps, without it. And then the last kind of category I came up with is sort of cultural effects. There's a long list of these. I'll just limit it to, to four. Um, in the 16th and 17th centuries, because you've got now competing claims about who's the real church in the West. It used to be easy. Well, it's the Roman church, more or less. That creates a sort of competition which sets in motion a lot, a lot of cultural forces. One is, very sadly, it led to a lot of religious wars, most notorious the Thirty Years' War, which just devastated Europe. Uh, and it shocked people. And it made people think, well, what's the cause of this? It's these religious passions. If we kind of find some way to, to uh, judge between these competing views of what Christianity is about, who's the real church, who's the authority. And of course, where could you possibly turn? Well, you can't turn to the Roman Catholic Church because there's some who say they're not the authority. You can't turn to any of the Protestant churches because there's some who say they're not. So who is it that could possibly bring everything together? Two things. One would be human reason. We share that in common. So maybe if we start using reason and rationality, it can judge religion and create peace. The other great thing that can bring together religions and keep peace is the state, because they've got the power of the sword. So as a result, you see kind of there's been this titanic battle for centuries between church and state. And the pendulum swings towards the state, largely because of the religious wars. One of the other things is it begins to raise doubts in people's minds about the truth of Christianity. Um, and this is still with us, not just to the Reformation, but just because we're fallen. But when Christians don't behave very, in a very Christ-like manner, 
then we diminish our ability to preach the gospel. Um, as Paul says, we all are living epistles. So if we don't live out the faith, um, people are not going to really listen very well to what we say. Even if everything we say is true, uh, if we're not living it out, it impairs the ability to speak. And I think that happened at the time of the Reformation and afterwards. Um, what happens then is that tolerance is at a premium. But that tolerance has evolved from being a kind of tolerance to uh, religious differences to a toleration of kind of everything, tolerance at all costs, erasing any important distinctions in, in culture or thinking. Um, it led to religious pluralism as well. If you're a monarch and you've got both Protestants and Catholics, uh, at some point, if you want to keep the peace, you've got to make a place for both. So instead of having um, a single country with a single version of Christianity, you have countries with multiple versions, and there has to be room for kind of a pluralism, but that, that eventually leads to a sort of secularization, because there isn't any one church that's really closely related to the state. So, uh, and that's the last thing, is that there's kind of a marginalization of religion. The state becomes more important in, order, in terms of keeping the peace, in terms of enforcing morality. And the church begins to withdraw at the same time that our spirituality becomes very individualized. It's kind of just me and Jesus, so if we wonder in some ways why it seems like we've very secular and where is God in our culture in some ways we've done it to ourselves that's my interesting line from the reformation to the secularization right, but it, right. it, yeah, it's, it's, it's unintended there. yeah there's a great book by um, a Roman Catholic scholar Brad Gregory called the unintended reformation he picks up six of these strands not at all what the reformation intended it's never, history's never that way you do this and then you don't realize oh wait <laughs> that, that, on that same principle 200 years later you get that What was good? What was bad? Could it have happened? Yeah, that's. Uh, I think in some ways it's almost inevitable that it was going to happen. Some of the advents of technology, the printing press. In some ways, we're living through. I don't know if you think of it this way, but we're living through an age very similar to that one. Uh, there are incredible abuses of power, uh, although not, not necessarily religious. Um, we have an explosion of access to ways of thinking that uh, we didn't even have 20 years ago. Uh, there's an explosion of, of information. Um, I, I think that one, as I think about the positives and the negatives, I'll, I'll think about from my primary vocation as a teacher, um, I wouldn't have the job I do today without the Reformation. At least not. The, the classroom sizes that I have, uh, where I, I see 75 students every day, um, that that would be uh, not necessarily the case 700 years ago. Uh, and I get to teach in my native tongue. And why is that? Uh, well, be, because what Father Erlinson was talking about, the explosion of, of learning how to read and uh, the Bible being translated into uh, German and into English and into French, uh, the availability of um, God's word in our hands, uh, therefore necessitating people like me having to teach people how to read. Uh, I don't have that hard job. My daughter's mm -hmm. first and second grade teachers, those people have the, the tough job. Uh, I have the more nuanced end of things. But I think also one of uh, the great um, gifts of the Reformation, and you see it also in the Catholic Reformation with Charles Borromeo, uh, is this emphasis on... Um, catechesis and teaching well. Uh, you have uh, seminaries that are born out of um, the Reformation. I think that's one of God's great gifts that uh, our pastors and our priests are are very well educated today by a lot of different standards. And I think that that's a huge gift uh, from the Reformation. 
Uh, J.I. Packer has an interesting book on the history of catechesis, uh, and he makes an interesting observation that when the church is um, in peril uh, and it does not have power uh, and it's afflicted on many sides, it teaches well. Think of the early church trying to define itself uh, in relation to uh, a predominantly pagan culture. Um, there was a, an urgency to pass on the faith well to the next generation. Uh, and you see uh, that start to slip away as Christian becomes the legalized religion. Um, and Packer says when the church is powerful, it stops teaching. It assumes it doesn't have to. Uh, and he, he follows that, that pattern throughout hundreds of years of high points of church teaching and low points of church teaching. What he means by that is the whole package, uh, the training of, of priests and pastors and as well as how the laity is taught. Um, one of the things that I love about Luther's perspective is he wants to teach everyone how to pray. He wants to teach everyone how to come in contact with this divine, loving God who, I mean, the bottom line is Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, died and was resurrected from the dead for us. That's a, the fact that I can verbalize that clearly is a huge gift from the Reformation as well, that, uh, that, that we can all have this, this, comp, this thing in common. So, you know, one of the things... I think the, the modern challenge today, and this is just my perspective as an educator, uh, and, and how I see our ages as similar, is we, we are not an uneducated people. We have a literate populace. However, our, our, we have an illiterate populace. Mm -hmm. People who know how to read, but don't. And so the, the challenge of the church, I think today, is, is still the same challenge of how to get people in. We have, it's, it's almost... We're, we're almost worse off because we have to, we have the Bible in our own language and we can read it, but we don't open it. We're, we're afraid to. Uh, and I see that across denominations, not just in people I run into in my own spheres and circles, but in other countries. I grew up in South America and Brazil, and that same sort of mentality. I have the book. I can read it, and I can understand it, but there's something about it. I can't open it. I think there might be something to what you were saying in your talk, that the Bible is a book to be read in the that... And I think that's something that we ought to learn well uh, from um, our Catholic brethren, uh, is that, that and I, I would say that that's true of reading classics. Uh, mm. I'm teaching Hamlet right now, and my students, uh, if I just said, hey, here's Hamlet, sort yourself out, um, they might not, and then, hey, have a quiz over it tomorrow, uh, they might not like me so much. Um, they might not like me either, <laughs> either way. But uh, I think that that's one of the things that, that the Reformation gives us is, is we have a much greater responsibility as teachers because of the amount of things that people have access to in terms of literature. Thank you. Father Matt, what do you, what do you think? Um, I'm curious as to how many folks in the room have seen that movie called Luther starring Rafe Fiennes. Is it Rafe Fiennes? No. Joseph Fiennes. Joseph Fiennes. Joseph Fiennes. Mm -hmm. Raise your hand if you've seen that film. Highly recommend it. Um, part of me thinks, like, I, part of me wishes we could get together one last time, maybe next Thursday, and have a film night and, and watch that film. Because I think uh, what both, what amazing people are at this table. I don't deserve to be here at all. But I think both Charles and Blaine, um, especially Blaine perhaps, have alluded to Luther's, 
the quality of Luther's personality. And so Blaine emphasized that Luther wanted to teach people how to pray. Um, and there's something about seeing that visually and imaginatively represented on the big, on, in a film that really works. So if you haven't seen that, I hope that you'll see it. Um, uh, let's see here. I'm going to try to answer, I'm going to try to say some things about number one and number two that maybe I didn't even come close to saying when I talked and maybe, maybe no one here has said them at all. Um, and that is, although I think Father Erlinson may have hinted at this, one of the things that sort of blows my mind is that, and this might be a, it might be a failure, a negative of the Reformation, it's kind of shocking how much the medieval world is still with us. Um, that might seem very, very counterintuitive to most of you, but, but if you think about, for example, Protestant churches, we're still medieval in so many ways. We're still sort of fixated upon what happens to this piece of bread and this thing of wine on the, on the table. We're still fix, fixated on that. That is a medieval debate. Um, also, we are, if, if you think about, I, I, I used to be a Presbyterian, and by the way, it's, uh, I miss my brother Ben Wheeler, who's also not able to be here tonight. Um, I, I was in the, P, the Presbyterian Church, a more conservative denomination of the, of the Presbyterian Church, and it's all about confessions. And I think that Lutheranism is like that too. I mean, in order to be a pastor, you sort of have to subscribe to these big confessional, doc, uh, confessional statements, which are essentially systems of doctrine. That entire approach is very medieval. Um, if, I, if you held a gun to my head and said, are there any churches in our current contemporary culture that are not medieval or decidedly non-medieval, I think the only thing I can come up with really is the Pentecostal slash charismatic church. I'm not sure if they are medieval at all. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But, but I think that if you look at those traditions, you're really seeing something that was fundamentally absent in the late Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages. So the, it's just kind of interesting. The medieval legacy is still with us. Um, I personally think it's, it's going to be great when we can get past that um, and maybe get back to something like a patristic, ancient way of being Christian that has more in common with like what Blaine was saying when the church suffered and before the conversion of Constantine. And that really leads me to my last and final thing that I have. Um, and it's an attempt to answer number two. How do we be a reforming church in, uh, in Tyler in 2017? And part of me wants to draw a line through 2017 and maybe just say in the 21st century. How can we be a reforming church in our Western world in the 21st century? And I think that the answer to that is um, we can suffer together. Um, I have a feeling that uh, the only way that Baptists, and by the way, I miss my Baptist friends. I, I, I may, I'm, maybe I'm missing something, but it seems to me that there weren't. We ran out of nights. We ran out of nights. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All the more reason to have movie night next time. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I think that we're going to be suffering together, and that may be the only thing that can really bring us together in Christ, bring a Baptist and a Catholic together, a Pentecostal and, and a Lutheran together. Um, 
yeah. So, anyway, suffering, that's, those are my thoughts for now. Nice. Yeah, actually, you meet at the foot of the cross. And, uh, very, very interesting. Yeah. I'll do just a quick uh, uh, strength and weakness of the Reformation. Uh, the, uh, the strength, I think, of, to me, of the Reformation is that the, the Reformation recaptured that dynamic New Testament faith uh, with the emphasis on, on the centrality of Jesus Christ and God's justifying action in Christ and, and how that's all by grace, uh, centered in God's word, revealed in, uh, in, by God. There, there's a, a dynamic sense of faith there that the reformers picked up again, uh, and I, that is, is precious. And I, I think that's one of the great, great uh, gifts of the Reformation to us, and I, it's something for us, us to, continue, uh, to continue with. One of the, I was thinking about uh, negatives uh, from the Reformation, and, and, and there are some. Uh, one, one, of the, uh, one of the intriguing negatives to me, and I guess I can say this as a Lutheran, is uh, Luther in his old age got kind of crotchety. Huh. I mean, just got kind of ornery. Saying it nicely. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> nicely. Luther was uh, always very earthy and, and in your face and could get crude and I mean very much down to earth in his speaking. In his later years he took that to a new degree and scholars have argued why. They think the Reformation probably wore him down. Uh, we know he was in a lot of pain, a lot of failing health. I mean he just physically was not in good shape uh, but he got pretty ornery. Still did some good work. Some great sermons, did some, uh, some of his work on the Old Testament, was doing some magnificent work. Uh, but some of his interaction with people was, was bad, and some of what he wrote about people was horrible. Uh, he took a number of shots at some of his opponents that would get him kicked out of the church nowadays, uh, said some really nasty things about the Pope, uh, and, and uh, actually borrowed a lot from Revelation and took about every negative image in Revelation, the uh, Antichrist, the 666, the seven-headed beast, anything negative in Revelation, and said that, that that's really referring to the papacy, uh, and, and used that. You know one reason he did that? Huh. Is because he thought that he was living in the, in the apatolic, ap uh, eschaton. Yes, and but I'm looking for a different word. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Yeah. Yeah. The apocalyptic yeah. age. And that also is very medieval. Yeah, I was going to say. Very medieval. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, uh, the inter interesting twist of that is that uh, uh, I don't, some of you know, one of my hobbies is studying and writing on Revelation. I'm just fascinated by the wow. book. But, yeah, it's a little weird for a Lutheran to do. Uh, but uh, the Catholics have been at the forefront of, of Revelation research for centuries. And what happened is they got tired of all the bad uses of Revelation that the Lutherans were coming up with, namely referring to the Pope as, as uh, 666, and decided they needed to see what the book actually said. And so one of the interesting quirks out of the Reformation was that uh, the Catholics took the forefront in Revelation research and did some marvelous, marvelous work for many, many years. Protestants are finally catching up, uh, but it took us a long time to do that. The other place where Luther uh, really got negative was with the Jews. And, and said some things there that were absolutely horrible. He, uh, 
interesting, early on in his career, very open to working with the Jews. Uh, I think he had a hope that the Reformation would, would lead to more, uh, more conversions from Judaism, uh, and actually had a conference early on in Wittenberg with some Jewish leaders, which was unheard of in those times. I mean, just, he didn't do that. Uh, the end of his life went completely negative uh, on the Jews, uh, and wrote and preached uh, some horrible stuff. Uh, basically burned down their synagogues, killed them, uh, get rid of them, they're a blight on the earth. Uh, some some uh, horrible, horrible things about the Jews. Uh, and one of the scary things in, in history is the Nazis picked up on that. You know, Luther being very important in, uh, in German history, uh, the Nazis picked up on that and when you get, uh, when you get to the, uh, the, the era of the Second World War. Uh, so, you know, Luther was clear, we're simultaneously saint and sinner. And, and Luther, uh, Luther was both. So. How about radical individualism? That's kind of what I think. Like if you held a gun to my head and said, quick, what's the biggest negative or the biggest bad fruit? I, to me, that's it. And, and it, it is part and parcel with the invention of the printing press. Yeah. Um, and yes, technology is always bound up in these theological things. But I don't know. We are so individualistic in our day. And, and Wouldn't you say that that's just as much the legacy of humanism? as much as Luther, um, it'd say even, uh, I mean, you have these bents, you know, man is the measure of all things, uh, you have, the, 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 you know, I think about where a lot of, like, say, the romantic poets draw from, mm -hmm. uh, they're drawing from these neoclassical kind of influences, uh, they're looking at, you know, man as being innately good, um, I, I think you see a lot of, of, of this, I mean, I, I, I talk about the romantics because I think that yeah. we're we're stuck with the we are yeah. all romantics, uh, and the, the romantics are building on the backs of, of Look, a lot of that I medieval the word humanism. Romantic, right there. There you, there you go. We're, we're channeling. A, yes. The, the not same. Not surprising. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, I, I I do think radical individualism is a huge problem. I and I think that it, it has uh, it gets in the way. I, I think that one of the, the negative legacies is the great difficulty that we have in being charitable and loving towards one another despite our differences. And yet we share some incredible things in common. I think about the way my baptism compels me to love the people at this table and the people in this room because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so uh, I think that the way forward in our age is we have to, you know, we're, uh, what's that, uh, that speaking of movies, the, the, that uh, Bollywood movie of the guy in the boat with the tiger, the life of pie, yeah. Um, I, you know, I wonder, you know, we're all in this kind of life raft together and we're all at each other's throat and we've got to figure out how we're going to make it to the, the shore without you eating me or me eating you. Uh, and I, I think that, that we've had a failure in our imaginations of what life together might look like. And I think that part of my project as an in, radical individual, but no, it's, it's not an individual thing. It's, it's with, with my community is eating with people. I think that that's one of the things that I see going on in your depth group. Um, there are pockets of, of people in the city who a lot of my friends are not from my church, they're from other churches. And that's, I think, a way forward. We have to forge friendships with people who are different than us and love them for the sake of Jesus Christ mm. and eat at their table and invite them to eat at our tables because we need each other. It's not a matter of preference. I think that's one of the, the, the things that shocked me most about moving to this city is how churches, by and large, don't do anything together. They certainly don't work on common projects together, 
I'm sure there's a, a variety of reasons for that, but we have so many resources that if we were to pull them and, and someone just say, I don't really care if I get the credit for this. You can have the credit for it. Let's let's do something together. Uh, and who knows? Maybe something miraculous would happen through that. But I think that there's a lot of this, I want credit for something um, in, in our city that prevents people from working together and the people who suffer the most as a result are the people who need our good works. It's kind of connected with what I talked about last week. I think um, we talked about individualism. There's a lot of things that are all trending in the same direction. And it's hard to sort out historically whether the Reformation is cause or effect. It's really both. There is, at the end of the Middle Ages, Matt referred to, um, we're left with a lot of medievalism. Um, uh, who was it? There was somebody who was talking about nominalism, I think. Maybe that was that here. Was, was it you? Yeah, um, the turn philosophically towards that, um, and also a turn maybe towards Aristotle and the um, particulars rather than the universals. That was already in motion. Then you've got the Renaissance, where there's the exaltation of man, the individual man, uh, looking back to the glories of Rome and Greece instead of maybe back to the church or the Bible. And then at the same time, you get uh, the Reformation, of course, and some strands of individualism. And at the same time as that, you start getting now the Bible as a sort of religious artifact that I can take outside of the church and read on my own. I don't really need the church as much. So there's a lot of things that are forced in that, um, uh, kind of together. So that is where we're at. And the, the way forward is to start our thinking in terms of, um, you mentioned patristically, but also biblically. If you look at the Bible, the presentation of um, who, for example, the New Testament is written to. It's written to churches. Churches and church leaders, the only exception is Philemon, as far as I know. So... The U usually is probably plural. read in churches as well. What's that? Which was probably read in churches. Oh, of course, well. it was, right. All, all of them would be, right? All of this, in fact, think about it. Um, until the printing press, the only place you get the word of God is in the, among the people of God. These two go together. The scriptures were, were uh, written uh, for, written by, written to, in the context of canonized, transcribed, transmitted, translated until pretty recently, and people like Thomas Nelson can copyright it. Until recently, it was all done. The church, the word of God, the people of God are, are the same thing. Which is why Bibles were chained to the pulpit. Right, yeah. <laughs> because they were so expensive. Exorbitantly expensive. Even, because even, they were so rare. Right, go buy, try to buy a Gutenberg Bible today, right? And it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have our version of Anna White. Uh, who will be uh, passing the mic around. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, could you talk about the relationship of individualism to sola scriptura? Yeah, and, and I think that the, the, the relation, I think one of the spin-offs of, uh, of sola scriptura is some individualism, that the Catholic Church had a structure for interpreting the Bible, saying what the Bible says. One of the strengths of the Reformation is it told people to, to read the Bible for themselves. I think that's vital. Uh, but I'm not so sure that you can't go too far with this. And and people come up with, the Bible says what I want it to say. Uh, I know in, in, in the Lutheran Church, we've had some tremendous arguments uh, about uh, what what the Bible what the Bible says and abilities. What do one of my profs say? A lot of biblical scholarship is devoted to talking their way around the Bible. You know, that they're, 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 we study it from our perspective and our context, and it actually becomes a way of saying no to what's in the scripture. And it, it's that individualism. And I've wondered, how do you balance everybody reading the Bible but not taking off in their own direction? And maybe it's what uh, Blaine was saying, that you read it in community. 
and we hold each other accountable. That, that if I come up with a wild interpretation of scripture, you can say, no, that's, that's not there. But I think, yeah, there, there's some parallels there that are, that are and we're paying the price for it. And on the, uh, well, uh, important thing to remember, too, is that Luther learned the scriptures through Augustine in a lot of ways. And he definitely cites his sources. Uh, he, he's a man who is shaped by the fathers. He quotes the fathers a lot. Uh, he, he has a great debt in his understanding of scripture from many, many different interpreters. Uh, and I think that maybe a way to understand it. Same with Calvin. Calvin, yeah. yes. Very much. The way to understand is maybe make my Catholic brethren uh, happy is that there's more of a scriptura prima, that scripture is the law by which we evaluate all of these other things, but we're part of a community that extends in both directions, the past and the future. And we are all gathered around this book on Sunday mornings, not just the immediate people in our, our context, but all of the church's witness is brought to bear on these scriptures. So if I ignore Augustine or I ignore Irenaeus or I ignore Father Matt or Pastor Mark, Charles Erlinson, you know, we are all, you know, I'm, I'm poor for it. And or my wife. Yes, or my <laughs> wife. <laughs> yes, yes. All, I mean, the, the priesthood of all believers, you know, we all bring something to bear and we have to listen to each other. I think that one of big downsides of the Reformation um, is this idea that we are all the final form of the church that Jesus Christ wants, every, whatever our immediate congregation is, uh, and that's clearly not it. I, I think that, that in this year of 2017, uh, the passage that keeps coming up over and over is John 17, uh, Jesus Christ praying for the unity of the church, that it would be one even as he and the Father are one, and obviously visibly that is not so. And yet our Lord still praise that prayer on our behalf, and we know that whatever he asks for, he will achieve. And given that we are not yet in that visible uni unity that he desires of us, we have to humble ourselves and submit to that, to one another. Uh, I, I think that we are still in the reform process, every single one of us, in all of our churches, until we come back visibly under the lordship of Christ in physical, tangible ways. I think that, that, that our Catholic brethren are very right to say that. Um, I don't know, know on whose terms and how. It will have to be on the Lord Jesus's, and it might be only upon his return, but I'm obligated by his prayer to work to that end. Interesting. We talk about, uh, you know, and I think the Reformation has, has worked in some individualism in our, in our, in our particular faith walks, uh, but also in denominations and, 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 uh, and congregations. You know, as near as I can see in Tyler, there are a lot of congregations doing some incredible work. I mean, there are just some marvelous ministry going on in this community, uh, but we don't cross-pollinate much. And and how do we, how do we take the next step and have some of these conversations and maybe dinners and studies between congregations and and break down some of those walls? And I, I think that would be a a way of addressing some of the unity the Scripture calls for and the Bishop Strickland was asking for, and might be a, a at least the next step forward. And one of the reasons why we don't cooperate is um, not only post-Reformation, but especially in the American context, which is somewhat unique, um, because we've not had a state-sponsored church, is we tend to conceive of religion and ver various versions of Christianity in terms of denominations and in terms of what's been called the spiritual marketplace. There is a competitive nature to Americans. Uh, so if I venture out and cooperate at Good Shepherd Reformed Episcopal Church with Christ Episcopal Church. You know, we're kind of looking at each other. 
suspiciously. Is he going to steal my sheep? Am I going to steal his? Or, you know, are we going to, how much can I invest here? Because that's taken away from me, and we're kind of a smaller partner compared to them. So, you know, you get all these kinds of, the opposite of love, in other words, is looking at my own interest. And it's very natural. So you understand, we grew up with that. We're told that's the nature of not just economic reality, but implicit, is that there's this kind of spiritual version. And we see that individually, too. That rather than, than devoting myself to uh, our Savior Lutheran, or Christ Church, or, or Good Shepherd, we do what I call shopping for God. Well, let me take a little bit from you guys. So I'm going to kind of, you know, I mean, you might get part of my tithe, but I'm going to spend maybe Sunday mornings here, Sunday evenings there, do this and that. So I'm going to distribute myself individually rather than saying, no, wait, I'm a member of this parish. Let me give myself wholeheartedly to that. Because then if I'm, it's that individualism again. I'm kind of in charge. I can pick and choose where, where I dispense my sort of religious... Um, Goods and services. What do you think the opposite of individualism is? Um, Trinitarianism. Actually, not the opposite. The opposite would be the opposite would be uh, communalism, which is just as bad. The answer is always Trinitarianism. One person, three God. Uh, let me get that right. You're gonna kick me out. One God, three persons. Yes, that's something we do agree about. One God, three persons. So it's always Trinitarian. Um, in fact, theologically, philosophically speaking, to be a person is to be in communion. There is no individual, honestly, in, term, in human terms. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. So whenever we start thinking, either as individuals only or as the state or corporations only, we've already missed the boat theologically. Uh, it's both and. So, so does God care more about individuals or uh, the corporate, whether it's church, state, and so on? Both. You, you, to, to, to privilege one over the other is already to lose and to, have, to exaggerate. The, the phrase that's been in my mind for the last few minutes is the phrase mutual submission. That's a biblical phrase, isn't it? Yeah, I right. guess. But um, I've, I've heard both of y'all talk about that, all three of y'all. And it's funny because when you said the Holy Trinity, I thought to myself, wow, yeah, there is mutual submission going on within the Father, the Son, and the there Holy is. Spirit. And then we talked about kind of a Christological approach. Um, how did Christ come? How did Christ uh, manifest his kingship? Well, it's at the cross where this is Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. His kingship is exercised by being the suffering servant. These two ancient ideas in the Old Covenant that don't seem to have anything to do with one another. That's how we, we do. We serve together. We serve one another. And that's hard because there's always the threat that Matt might really steal my sheep. You know what? And vice versa, right? And then if, especially if he does it, I'm more likely to do it. You know, my church council gets mad at me because I'm losing members. You know, it's, exactly. it's dangerous. It, it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because, because we thrive yeah. on that, because, because we play the numbers game. Look at church growth, right? We, isn't, we, we, isn't the reality, though, that there are far more parishioners in the city who need good priests and pastors than there are pastors and good priests? Mm-hmm. I'm trusting what you're saying. I think so, yes. Well, well, well yeah, I, I think that, that's yeah, the, the fields, bottom line. The fields are always white. Yeah, it's only 30% right. of Tyler goes to church on Sunday morning. Is that right? That's... The There's a Baptist that once asked a question. Go. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. Hey. Let's break this out. Yeah. Do, you, do you guys agree? Here's the. I want to check my premise first. Do, do you gentlemen agree that the Holy Spirit played a role in the Reformation in some way, yes. shape, or fashion? Everybody agree with yeah, that? Yes, I do. Okay. If, you were to, if somebody were to write the story of 1517 to 1650, bind it up, be completely objective, and say it's, and we all agreed it was canonical in some way. It seems to me that you would read it and come to the conclusion that God and His Holy Spirit was exercising some sort of judgment upon His church. Mm-hmm. Do y'all agree with that? I do. Okay. 
Yes. Okay. One thing that I don't know that we've discussed a lot over the past several Thursdays is what was it do we think that God was exercising judgment on in the church that caused this great schism? And if if the Reformation, at, at least in part, is a form of judgment by God, do, you, do y'all think that at least in part it was that God was exercising some sort of judgment upon his church? What was the underlying reason for that, do we think? And, and what sorts of, how do we, pre- how do we, instead of how do we how do we be a reforming church in Tyler? How do we prevent our churches from needing to be reformed? I guess, and that type of having judgment exercised upon them, like like happened in such a radical way back then. I don't. Think, Does that question make sense at all? Yeah, I don't think you avoid it. Um, I think I'm we're trying the, to avoid judgment. But well, I don't think you can. Except I would not use the word judgment. I think we're the children of God, and then the writer of Hebrews says that we're going to be disciplined. Again, we tend to think of that being primarily about individuals. God disciplines his body, his, his child, the, the, uh, the church. So he spanks us, and it hurts. And um, so I don't want to flee that because that's the only way I'm going to come back, or we are going to come back to our senses. So we're not going to avoid that kind of fatherly judgment. But it is fatherly discipline. It's not punishment or judgment in the sense that that's um, usually taken. That's seen as being a kind of a negative sort of... Uh, Antipathy. It's not punitive. It's not punitive. It, it, it's it's to restore. It's a loving father, and he, he would be remiss to not spank us. And I think that to get to your question about what was it, um, I guess maybe it's a little safer to say this. I wish my Roman Catholic brethren were here, but I think there's a sense in which maybe the root of a lot of this has been the arrogance of um, of the Roman Church, because along with the Eastern Church, they were both they split in 1054, and I think that um, if a church is unwilling to reform itself, then God will use uh, the wild boar of uh, Psalm 80, which is Luther, to come in and, like a bone in China shop, shake things up. It's what's often called a kind of tragic necessity. We wish it could have happened more peaceably, but if you have a wayward child, um, simply whispering and saying, come on back, doesn't work anymore, does it? You, t- you kind of use sterner measures. And a uh, theme I've been toying with just on a grand scale in almost every area of my life, personally and pastorally, is this, it's, it's um, Genesis chapter 50. Um, when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, they meant it for evil, but Joseph tells them to their face, what you meant for evil, God means for good. So in spite of our sins and our clumsiness and our pride on all sides, uh, East, West, Protestant, Catholic, God is in the process of redeeming even our mistakes. And so out of that evil, in a sense you could say of the Reformation, precipitated by the evil of the errors of Roman obstinacy, God is always willing to use that to reform his church, to beautify uh, the bride of Christ. Um, and so all of those things that, with a lot of negatives, high negatives on the Reformation, but look at the wonderful gifts God's given us as well that wouldn't have come if he hadn't disciplined his, his son. Shane, have you seen the uh, Luther movie? <clears throat> Man, one of the things that it just does such a great job of showing is how, gosh, the sheep... Mm. of the Catholic mm. Church were completely neglected, completely abused. That's what I love about Luther most is his pastoral heart. I mean, he there's a scene in that movie where he's burying someone who committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And I love, I, that scene. I love that scene too. And I, it's a good question you're asking. And there's we could all have long answers, although maybe none of us as long as Father Charles. Um, <laughs> Um, 
But golly, the sheep, uh, it, it just seems like the Catholic Church was abusing the sheep, taking their money, not loving them, not teaching them, not empowering, not, not cultivating their gifts. I'm pretty sure that makes God angry. Well, I mean, to build on that, one of the first things that Luther does after his excommunications, he sends pastoral teams out to different parishes just to kind of assess what the needs are. And he routinely finds situations where um, the lady had not had Eucharist in upwards of four years, mm -hmm. five years. Right. Uh, confessions had not been taken. Um, priests were openly living, living not just with one woman, but two or three. So, I mean, the, there was a, a, a sense in which the depravity or the breakdown in society was such that uh, whenever the least of these are being taken advantage of, I think God's wrath boils. Amen. And I, I wonder about that, you know, in terms of judgment for our own city. Mm. What about us, uh, our own neighbors? Uh, you know, we're kind of, here we're trying to figure out how we can come together as white churches, but we have brethren across the way down there, um, north, uh, the black churches here in Tyler that aren't represented here tonight. It, yeah, amen. And why? It's because we're, one reason, we're still medieval. Yeah. <laughs> we're still sitting around talking about doctrine. And it's not all bad. It's not yeah. all bad. But uh, it is very medieval. And I got to say that this whole thing about sh uh, shepherding the sheep, it's not just a gift of Luther. It's the gift of Lutherans. Um, Blaine Davis mm -hmm. and Pastor Mark Brayton are kind, loving shepherds. More than most Presbyterians. I'll just say it. <laughs> more, than, more than most Baptists. I can tell you that because I used to be one. More than most Episcopalians. And, um, yeah, I think that, that's a real gift of the, of the Lutheran church. Thank, and thank you, gentlemen, for that. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to make a move and go back from uh, kind and loving and back to judgment because that, that, your, your question fascinates me. You know, it, it was the church at the time of the Reformation under the judgment of God? And I think, yeah, there were things that were wrong that, that had to be dealt with. One of the questions that haunts me, I, I heard a speaker a few years ago asking the question of, is the American church uh, now standing under the judgment of God? Uh, and his, his do, you know, do you know what the fastest growing religion in the world is right now? Yes. Fastest growing religion in the world? Yes. Christianity. Christianity, by leaps and bounds. Uh, China, Africa, uh, I was in Ethiopia not too long. Christianity is growing like crazy, but the United States is not participating in that. Uh, and so one of the questions I think we have to ask is, are, are, are we being judged for something? And, and, and when it comes to the issue of the judgment of God, I am very good at pronouncing the judgment of God on you. Hmm. You know, I, I will be very happy to do that. I think the biblical challenge is, is to, be, to stand before Scripture and say, where does the judgment of God how does it land on me and our congregation and our denomination? And to stand in front of that. Uh, and I think it'd be an interesting question is, is what are, are the things we failed to do? What do we have to do to be faithful again? And maybe that's where Reformation starts in Tyler. Right? Got a couple of Sarah? Bono one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that was a pretty good imitation, that actually. Was. That <laughs> so was. it was a good scurry there. That was well done, well played. Um, I'm I'm always encouraged by these. Thank you all so much for working to put this together, and for the people who have come every week to sit and listen and think. Um, 
there is something going on in Tyler that people are all working on together. 20 churches, North and South Tyler, are working on a little school um, in North Tyler at a at a um, African American church, and um, and so God is at work. There are some other little projects going on, kind of around Tyler, um, maybe not really well known yet, but God is working to bring His people together around the essential things. Um, so that is happening, and I think it is a prophetic voice to say that's kind of where the body needs to to go you know but also I think we can think about a lot of times we think about the body of Christ as our individual congregations and like okay like who is the head here and like who is the foot here but I think we can think of our denominations in Tyler that way and I like how Matt Father Matt was saying um you know that the Lutherans are really pastoral you know and what if that's y'all's role in Tyler you know and the Presbyterians you know we like to teach and think a lot and you know maybe that's our role in the body can we can we in the body work together the way that God has I mean allowed and orchestrated the denominations to exist in this community and lean on each other as essential parts like what do we do best in the body of Christ um outside of just our independent yeah. denomination. So, um, and I like Episcopalians too, but um, anyway, I have to be, I have to throw the PCA down. Anyway. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be exciting to get that mindset? I mean, that would, that would just be, a, that would just be incredible. Yes. Be great fun. But to do it, we have, you know, we got to hang out. Right. We have to know yeah. each other. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I would say, you know, the second question was how can we be more kind of reformational? Um, be a reforming church, I think that we eat, pray, and live together. We may not fully be able to worship. There is a brokenness to the body of Christ. We all know that. But as much as possible, let's pray together. Let's eat together. Let's talk together. So this this is, right, what we're doing tonight is the embodiment of what we're talking about. And yes, I would have liked to have had Baptists and our black churches and so on, but it makes sense that you start where you're at. Um, Jesus went out to his uh, to the Galileans mostly. To his uh, kinsmen. And that's how religious movements almost always start. So we should get there. But we're going to get there through first, maybe this way. So you've got to start somewhere. Um, and like Sarah was saying, there's already things that have started uh, that involve a larger vision for the um, church. So we can't, we're not going to get there. This this took, you know, 2,000 years to get here, to have this brokenness. Not going to get fixed on our watch. Not on the grand level. It doesn't have to. But on a small level, we kind of turn the ship around and go the right direction. And you just build those bridges as much as you possibly can. Eat together, pray together, live together as much as you can. Um, the point about suffering is and to ask bring for us help. Uh, I think, and ask for help from one another. Ask for help from we one have, another. We have be willing to give help, reasons. right? But that, but yeah. the only way you can do that is if you have a, 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 a pre-existing relationship. You have to know. Oh wait, uh, there isn't our favorite Lutheran, and I know where they are now. You know. And thank you for the hot dogs and all the other stuff the other night, because that was great. And the free, the free beer and dinner, that was good. I was glad to partake of that fellowship on more levels than one. That was that was wonderful. But, you know, and to, to set this up, I had wanted to do something like that at Good Shepherd. We wouldn't have done it nearly as well. So I'm glad to be part of this rather than saying, let's go off and do our own. I thought about this two years ago. I saw the 500th year coming. I thought, man, we've got to do something. Well, maybe we didn't. Maybe this was the something. It was already there. Somebody else is doing it better. Just join in with them rather than being, well, yeah, I don't know, but that's them. What about us? Well, it is us, the bigger us. So, again, thank you for having done this, because you're, this is embodying what we're talking about. You're doing it.
what would it what would it look like to do something similar next year with the Baptists and some of the black churches? And we've got a good start. Yeah, and I think you're, I think there maybe are some promise could host. You think that maybe promise could host? Yeah, and there are some there's some great stuff starting. I mean, Promise Academy, uh, uh, Carlton Nobie's work with uh, Walls to Bridges. I mean, there's there's some neat stuff going on at Tyler, but we how do we how do we keep going with all that? I see fingers. No, pointing, not, not, not. Behind you, Milo. <laughs> Behind you. Behind you, Milo. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, how does closed communion figure mm -hmm. into the re reforming church? Closed communion. Sorry, where, who, who asked this question? Oh, okay, great. Kids, don't be bashful. Okay. Stand up. Okay, how does closed communion figure into the Reforming Church? Can, closed clo communion by closed some communion. Lutheran churches and yeah. Catholic churches. Can, can I give you a, an argument for both sides? Uh, we, we, do, we do open communion in our Savior's work. Well, no, I would say, I would, I would disagree with you, Pastor, because you make a caveat before you okay, invite people well, to the table. Baptized. Okay, uh, yeah, that's yeah, still open communion technically. Right? Yeah. It is. Blaine. Yeah. Yes. Closer to your mic, please. So sorry. Yeah, there, I would like to ask the questioner to define closed communion. Yes. Okay, I grew up uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, mm -hmm. wonderful church. Right. I'm now a Methodist, but it has nothing to, to do. It's life change. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with closed communion, and now it's open communion. And I like the open communion because to me it's like, inviting someone to dinner and then saying you can't have the food if mm -hmm. you uh, right. invite them to church. So I I just wonder about that. I'll, I'll take a shot at that. My fr The first church I served, uh, yes, members only. I had a, yeah, closed communion means members only. And and I had a, I served a Missouri Synod church and a, what was an ELCA church at the time. One did open, one, one didn't. Uh, it's actually, it comes from a different understanding of communion. The churches that do closed communion mm -hmm. understand that communion is a meal for the family. And so there has to be agreement among the family, agreement in doctrine, and then we bring that unity and have a family meal together. So the unity exists, and then you bring that up to the altar. The churches that do an open communion are just the opposite and say, no, it's coming to the altar that unifies us, that by ourselves we're broken, we're, we don't get along, we're sinners, but we come to the altar precisely to be unified by Jesus Christ. Uh, and personally, I like I like the open communion understanding better. That if we wait until we're all agreed and get along perfectly, it's never going to happen. We're a bunch of sinners, uh, but we come together to the altar, and there Christ uh, Christ through His sacrament uh, unifies us. But that's that. I think you folks do open communion. Um, we we do open communion. In fact, um, when the Reformed Episcopal Church revised the historical prayer book. Uh, it's almost identical to all of the old ones, 1549, 1662. We put in one change, which is right before um, we give communion, we make an invitation. All baptized Christians of other branches of Christ's church who love our divine, divine Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in sincerity are affectionately invited to the Lord's table. So we practice open communion, um, and we do it um, on the basis of baptism. And if you're baptized into the one body, then I want to know why I'm excommunicated. There's, you're excommunicated usually if you are a notorious evildoer. That is, it's public sin that you're unrepentant of. So if you're baptized and have faith, then come. 
Now, the downside to that, which I, I prefer to, or on this, this side of the open communion, is that in our fluid um, post-modernity, um, there's a connection. There's a pastoral connection and a, a bodily, family connection between communion and the people partaking it. And I can't know if anybody coming before the table at Good Shepherd is in sin or not because I don't have a pastoral connection to any visitors. So there is a downside, but there's no perfect answer, so I'd prefer to err on the side of open communion on the basis of baptism. So I know that there's at least two Methodists in the room. <laughs> I, I suspect that there might be more than two. There's at least three. Um, did y'all know that Wesley... God bless him. Wesley, who died, uh -huh. died an Anglican yeah. priest with a prayer book in his hand. Yeah. But did you know that Wesley believed in open communion in the sense not just for any baptized person, but for the unbaptized? And that is because Wesley, and, and this is true, I believe, of the historic Wesleyan tradition, Wesley viewed that sacrament as a converting ordinance. That's one reason I was asking the questioner to define what she meant by open communion. Um, all of, yeah, so am I making sense right now? Okay. So, can you say a little bit more about this converting ordinance? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us at this table, even the ones of us who believe in open communion, that is to say all baptized Christians are welcome to partake, we would all still say that that meal or that sacrament is intended for the baptized only. Right. I.e., it's intended for those who already belong to Jesus Christ. Right. Wesley said, no, no, it's, it's intended for everyone, whether you're baptized or not, whether you're a Christian or not. Why? Because he thought that communion, holy communion, was one of the ways that God saves people, that God justifies people even. Kind of crazy. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> we, we have an order here. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, can I go back a little ways uh, to your conversation about the church grows in persecution and that kind of thing? Um, I lived in the Middle East for quite a while. And my experience is that whether you've got a collar on or you don't have a collar on or you're this brand or that brand didn't matter nearly as much when you're surrounded by 30,000 Palestinians. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and and uh, why is the church growing in Africa or China? Uh, a little bit of the same thing and also just uh, life is tough. And when life is tough... Um, you lean on each other. What what I'm hearing, and I appreciate the comment about half of Tyler's not here. That's important. Um, each of us has our organization, and we have our doctrine, and we have our um, hierarchy or authority. But there's another side to Christianity that has to our, do with our personal spirituality and relationship to Jesus Christ and God. And if we were to focus more on that and less on these outward things, we might find ourselves coming together uh, in a hurry, with or without the Reformation. Thank you. I'm 
Standing up. <laughs> no, could we go back to the communion and uh, why you must be baptized? What is, what is uh, the Lutheran's reasoning in that? It's not just Lutheran. It's right. Yeah, and that be I think pretty much. But for Lutherans, it's a, a communion is a family meal, and you become part of the family through baptism. Uh, and and so uh, uh, it the family comes together uh, and. You, you become a, we had a, there was actually a, uh, to go to the other extreme, uh, and this happened in a mainline denomination, I won't Radical name it. Radical inclusion? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. In, a, in a right. California, not too long ago, mm -hmm. uh, one of the uh, mainline denominations in this country shared a service with the Hindus, and they, uh, and they used a Hindu holy bread uh, and, and shared communion and said it really didn't matter. Uh, we were just all going to come together to get to know God. And I'm thinking, No. No, that 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 I, it, it seems to me Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the right. life." You know, there, there's. You're, you're, I think Christians are always balancing that inclusivity uh, with with uh, with with an exclusive claim of Jesus. You know, all are invited, uh, but 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 it's Christ at the center, and so the, and that's a balance that we always uh, we always struggle with. One of the things that um, uh, Anglicans look at it in terms of continuity. Uh, we're trying to preserve as much as the Catholic heritage as we can. So if you look at the Old Covenant, the New Testament um, practices and teachings and the practices of the early church, you see, for example, in the Old Covenant, uh, how did somebody become a Jew and how were they able to take the Passover? They had to be circumcised. No circumcision, no Passover. In the New Covenant, Paul suggests in the early church taught that baptism is actually an incorporation into the mystical body of Christ. So on the basis of being in Christ, we get to partake of the truly the body and blood of Christ. So you can't partake of the body and blood if you're not in him. So that's why baptism is kind of also um, is seen generally as being necessary for salvation. As Peter says, what must we do when he's asked to repent and be baptized? Because you have to be in Christ to get the holy meal. I'd, I'd probably want to switch that around. If someone came to me and said, I'm not baptized, but I want communion. Uh, and try not to sound too legalistic, uh, but maybe lay out the whole thing. Well, if you know, if, if you want Jesus, here's here's the way He lays it out. Let's start with baptism, and then move into communion. Right. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to become too hard and fast. In it, but I, there's an orderliness there that uh, the church has tried to live well, with. Don't we come to Christ on His terms and not our own? Right. Right. He is our Lord, and He lays things out for us. Yeah. And the first thing that we ought to do is to bend our knee because he is Lord of all. And so I, I think, you know, to push back a little bit on your, your comment about of inward spirituality, I doubt mine all the time. I'm a sinner. I screw things up every single day. I've screwed up at least 10 things today. Uriah told me that one of my former students thought I hated them. So I'm a failure <laughs> as a teacher in so many ways. But thanks be to God that my salvation is not rooted in what I think about God, but rather what God thinks about me. I can point to that external thing that Jesus does to me and say, it's that. Mm. I doubt myself every single day. Do I believe strongly enough? Do I do it rightly enough? No. But Jesus Christ has given me his word. He says, I am, you belong to me, Blaine, in these waters of baptism. And who am I to doubt him? I think that's, that's, I think that's the Luther in me coming out, saying, God is always truthful and I'm a liar. Thanks be to God that he tells the truth about me. Grace, baby. Grace, baby. <laughs> um, maybe that's the summary of the Reformation. Okay. 
But okay. so, Pastor Mark, um, in, in response to this question about why baptism, <clears throat> earlier, uh, Pastor Mark, you spoke about how churches that affirm open communion are more hospitable and they see this something profound happening as people approach the altar. That's kind of interesting. Um, and, and, I, and, and, and also, I think we would all say that, like, if, someone, if you're having dinner at your house and someone knocks on your door, we, we're all called to open our, like, it's good to, to practice hospitality on the front porch, like, have a nice little conversation with them while they're on their front porch. And then, like, I think the Jesus way would even include invite them in, invite them into the house, and maybe even set a, a place for them at the table, serve them food, invite them all the way into the dinner table. But do you invite them into the marriage bed? I don't think so. <laughs> right? And, and biblically, that is what Holy Communion is. Holy Communion, and there, there's a, it's, it's not a coincidence that, that in the book of Revelation, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. we see imagery of the, merit, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and there's all sorts of sexual imagery. The language of intimacy mm -hmm. uh, uh, surrounds whatever it is that we're doing around the altar, around the table. So I think that's a helpful way to think of it as well. There are boundaries. You don't, you, you don't invite any old Tom, Dick, or Harry to the most intimate space <laughs> of your family. Well, and I think something is probably true in the household of the church as well. That's nice. Oh, yeah. See, my question was... Now, Can we do one more question? Then I think we better... Probably better, uh... Well, mine was because, like, if children are a gift from God mm -hmm. and the age of accountability is eight, and that's usually when kids are baptized, right? Mm. No. It, no. It, no, it differs. <laughs> it differs. Different <laughs> traditions have, yes. Nope. <laughs> because it's what Sorry, God but you're 0 for 4 at this <laughs> table. Because <laughs> in, in, in my church, from the time you're born, you can have, we don't call it communion, we call it sacrament. And the children have it because they're gifts of God, and they're they're innocent until the age of accountability. Therefore, they're allowed to have the communion or sacrament. So, so, so I say, like I say, so. I shouldn't say this, but in your church, kids don't sin until they're eight. Yeah. <laughs> no. As a parent, my my, 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 my kids were overachievers. They they, got under, <laughs> they started way early. Yeah. No, to be baptized. <laughs> So, so my question is, uh, when are children considered uh, the age of accountability? Again, in, in the different churches, if, and when are they considered innocent? And when you have communion or sacrament, whatever you want to call it, again, whether it's open, in our church it's definitely open because even children are allowed. Well, um, there's a lot of... The questions involved with that, the fact is that different churches have different views of that. Um, historically, there wasn't the notion of an age of accountability because, again, uh, when did uh, the Hebrew children partake of the Passover? They were circumcised at eight days old because the sacraments, whether old or new covenant, is, um, as Blaine was saying, is the work of God. Which is why most fonts in the church have eight they sides. They have eight sides because it's the eighth day, eighth day of creation, a new day, day of resurrection, which is also the first day, all that symbolism. Um, because it's what God does, and he's invited the children and suffered the little children to come. Um, so the fact is, whether there's an, an age of accountability or innocence or not, we're all sinners. God calls us anyway. I don't come to the communion because I'm so good I can come. I come because I'm so bad. 
and uh, because God is offering his grace. If I waited till I was good enough, I would have excommunicated myself. <laughs> so, so God is very gracious and invites the children in. And there is a sense in which as they get older, you see, it's kind of an organic thing. There's not an eight-year-old uh, kind of, in my mind, in the historic church, it's that God can reach down and save even John the Baptist in the womb. And so you grow into it. So as you're two years old, you have a two-year-old kind of accountability. As you're three, you're accountable for what a three-year-old's accountable for because it's organic and so on. So I don't know what that means when you're six months or a year old, but as they get older and older, then I expect more things of my kids. And I think God does. So, but his grace covers that um, because there's kind of a covenant that through his son, even to babies. I'm thinking we should probably wrap it up just because we said we would. Hmm. Although I'm, I'm intrigued by a model that's emerging here, and that is come together across denominational lines and talk about it. Mm -hmm. And why do you do this? And, why? and it doesn't yeah, have to yeah. be a theological debate. Right. Uh, but I learn, and I get some of my own practices questioned, and I go, yeah, maybe that's not the smartest practice. Mm -hmm. but, but I think if, if denominationalism becomes not uh, something that we fight over but get to talk about, that could be actually kind of fun. Thank you for the model. Uh, okay, folks, thanks for coming. I'm, a, I'm Milo Miles. I'm a member of Our Savior's Lutheran Church, and I would like to thank Blaine, Pastor Matt, Pastor Mark, Pastor Charles, and I want to thank them so much.